And now let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation. We've studied the whole rest of the Bible, going through it, and now we've come to the final book of the Bible. Now, for a lot of people, when you talk about Revelation, they get really excited. They're like, oh, good, Revelation. Because they think, you know, we're going to tell you who the Antichrist is and when he's going to show up and solve all the mysteries and everything. Other people are kind of disappointed about Revelation because they think it's so complicated, it's so weird, I don't think I could ever understand it. It looks like something written by a guy who had a bad drug trip, and, and they just go, forget it. And, and when you talk about biblical prophecy, people have argued about it so much that a lot of people have just lost their flavor for it. And maybe for some of you, it was one of those things where there was a time when you were totally stoked about reading about biblical prophecy, but it was because you thought that Jesus would for sure come back in the 80s. And then he didn't, and now you're over it. And you're like, yeah, I did that one time, I was into that, but I've given up on it. Um, I'm excited about studying the book of Revelation. There are a lot of reasons why. But most churches, frankly, don't spend much time in this book, if at all. It's easier to go find passages of Scripture that are telling you how you can be successful in your business or how you can be happy in your life or be a better parent or whatever. And so people tend to focus on the parts of the Bible that they see as being readily applicable to them and not, not controversial at all. If you, you know, to teach on on, you know, blessed are the meek, nobody's going to go, I don't agree with that. When it comes to to Revelation, you see, wow, there are a lot of different ways to understand some of these things. And you see, but wait a minute, I'm I'm an amillennialist, I'm a post-millennialist, I'm pre, I'm pre-trib rapture, I'm mid-trib, I'm post-trib, I'm, you know, and there are all these different things. And a lot of people just associate the whole thing with a bunch of arguing. And we're not going to do that I think as we go through the book, I'll bring out some of the reasons why people may believe certain aspects of what we call eschatology or the study of final things. But what I want to do is go through this book and see what it says. So I'm not teaching Revelation as an argument. I'm not teaching it to try to fix you if you have a different understanding of it. I'm really not concerned. We're going to see more and more that When it happens, then it's going to become clear, and no one will argue about it anymore. Nobody's going to be in heaven arguing eschatology, because it'll be over. Um, But the book of Revelation, as we see it and as we introduce it, um, I I would like you to consider, okay, what if we don't do this? What if I blow off Revelation? I'm coming to church, it's the beginning of the year, and now they're doing Revelation, and that sounds to me like I can take a few months off. What happens to churches that neglect to teach the book of Revelation? Is there a price, is there a a problem that may come about because of ignoring this book and blowing it off? And I would suggest that there is, in fact, and could be for us, and that's why to me it's so important to go through it. On the one hand, there are really good reasons to study Revelation, and on the other hand, there are some really um, negative consequences that happen if you neglect to study it. And so that's why it's here. And, and it's the capstone of the whole Bible. It, it's the probably the last book written in the Bible. Um, perhaps Third John was written after it, but 
for the most part, I mean, the book of Revelation was written when 60-some years after Jesus died and rose and went to heaven. So John lived to a very old age, and John was the one who was closest to Jesus of all the disciples. And, of course, he wrote the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was the last book that was written of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke had all told their version of you know, what happened with the life of Jesus. And the Gospel of John came along much later in order to say, okay, here's what you need to know, here's the story. Now, after writing that, which is the Gospel of John is an amazing book, after that, now John has this experience when he was on the island of Patmos as an exile, and he, and he meets this angel and Jesus himself comes to him and lays this this book out and for John it was important enough and to the early church it was important enough to say this is what brings the whole Bible together this is what completes the the revelation of of what God has to say to us and so it's there in the scriptures for a very good reason and it finishes things and ties up some loose ends and takes us from where we are to where someday we will be for eternity. And as a result, it's an exciting book. But we begin reading in verse 1, Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now let's just stop there for a moment after that third verse, because I see a couple things here already that could have negative consequences if you fail to read it as you look at the stated message of the book. The first thing that I notice here is in verse 1, it says these things are going to shortly take place. Now that can either mean they're going to happen right away or that when they happen, it's going to happen quickly. But then in verse 3 at the end where it says the time is near, you, get, you begin to get the idea of the importance of what we call the eminency of Christ. That is, He can come at any time. And again, there are people who have always scoffed at that notion. There have always been people who believe that notion, that he's coming soon. Now, throughout the New Testament, you can't escape the fact that this is a perspective that the apostles definitely had, and they had it for a good reason. Jesus said, I'm leaving and I'm coming back. And they lived with that expectation. Jesus, over in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, talked about the fact that nobody knows when I'm coming but I'm coming and it could be at any time. And then here he says this, James over in James chapter 5 talks about he is at hand. He's, he's almost here. He's coming. Paul talks about that. 1 Thessalonians 4 when he's talking about the rapture, he refers to we who are alive and remain until the rapture will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So Paul's expectation was I'm expecting the rapture at any time and I'm operating under the assumption that I'm going to be in it. Um, Paul also talked about in Titus 2, he said, we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so they always had this expectation. Well, that's projected here to the book of Revelation, which is actually sandwiched with this exhortation as well. Not only here in in the first chapter, in the first three verses, where twice it emphasizes that this is coming soon, turn over to the 22nd chapter, the final chapter of Revelation, and we'll see kind of Jesus, some of his final words that he has to say. Revelation 22 and verse 7 he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then over in verse 12 in chapter 22, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, the first and the last. So the book of Revelation, it has to be partly about the fact that he's coming soon. Now, we look back at someone who almost 2,000 years ago expected him to come back, and he didn't, and we think, boy, were they dumb. If they had known what we know, a lot of other things had to take place. Um, and, And we sometimes look at the apostles as if they were sort of deluded into thinking that Jesus was coming back, but there was no way that that was going to happen. Um... And, and certainly, they would have never expected there to be such a long time period before Jesus came back. But Peter talks about this already in his time when he says, look, God isn't slack. He's not slacking off concerning what he has promised, but he's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he addresses it and says, The delay is because of God's love and his desire to save as many people as will be saved, and that explains why he hasn't come yet. So the fact that it's taken a while should cause us to just go, wow, God is so patient and he's so loving. But the other thing is, I wouldn't say that if the disciples had known that Jesus wasn't going to come back for a couple thousand years, that their life would have benefited by that awareness. See, maybe he wasn't going to come back in their lifetime, but him believing that they could come back in their lifetime and their expectation affected the way they lived even as it affects the way we live. And so I think this is a teaching that's throughout the New Testament and it's not without a purpose. As we read this, we should pick up the message that he starts in verse 1 and he ends clear over in chapter 22 Jesus said, I could come back at any time. When Jesus said that, nobody knows when I'm coming, but you better be ready. You better have oil in your lamps. And in, uh, in Matthew 25, when he, he said, hey, you know what? There are people who um, aren't ready, and they're like evil servants who say, oh, my master delays his coming. And Jesus was constantly, no, you be packed and ready to go. Now, If you believed that Jesus was coming back soon, that would definitely affect the way that you live. And the first discussion question in the bulletin for the Home Fellowships deals with this. How would your life change? What would you do differently if you knew that you had two weeks to live? If you knew for sure Jesus is coming back in the middle of January 2011, would that change your life? And I would suggest that it probably would. 
And although some of us, and I've joked about, if I knew there were only two weeks left before Jesus is coming back, I would definitely max out my credit cards because I'm not going to have to pay them, you know. But there are other things. There are probably people that I would want to tell about Jesus that I would get down to it because there are only two weeks left. I also probably wouldn't want to waste any days. I don't think, you know, if I knew I had a couple days left, I don't think I would go, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm just going to lay in bed and catch up on all the football games I've TiVo'd during these holidays. Probably wouldn't do that. Probably wouldn't, you know, pay a scalper to get tickets to see WrestleMania. You know, I just, I don't think that would be the kind of priority. Because knowing that the time is short causes you to value things that are most valuable. There are certain people I would want to spend time with my family. There are other things that I would do because this is my chance to do it. And, and so as we study the book of Revelation, I hope that God just restores in us that anticipation and excitement of the awareness that this could happen at any time. As we see what the situation is like, you know, looking through these future things, and we go, wow, I could totally see this happening. I can see the pieces coming together. I could understand that. It's not an arrogance that says it has to happen right away. It's not that panic that would set in. It's the excitement. And, and I think that people who neglect the book of Revelation will also be missing some of the motivation that comes from our priorities being set based on a limited amount of time, based on only having certain opportunities. And so we tend to more, you know, kind of like the, maybe you've seen the movie The Bucket List, but it's the idea that, okay, these guys are about to die, so there are things that they want to do before they die. Um, it's kind of a cool thought in a way, although a lot of people would be depressed if they know they're going to die. But I've known people who knew they were going to die, and they really got their act together. They really got their lives together. They really closed some loops and said some things that needed to be said. And if we would live our lives that way, how much better would we be? How much different would we be? Or if we just go, you know what? It's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. Nothing. If I think that, that it's going to be another thousand years before Jesus comes back, then do I even matter? Do I even make a difference? Is, am I going to make a contribution that's going to last that long? I, I might feel like, eh, probably not. And I've seen people who get burned out on prophecy, and now they're living their life with kind of an empty sort of thing out there. Maybe they're thinking, well, you know, I mean, it's all going to pan out in the end. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to see Jesus. But what we see from studying this book is that we should be ready all the time. We know what's going to happen. We know how it's going to happen. We just don't know when it's going to happen. So we ought to keep this in the forefront of our minds to be prepared for what is inevitably going to happen. And we're getting closer to it all the time. That understanding affects how we live our lives. So that's one of the things that if you neglect the book of Revelation, you'll miss it out. But another thing that you see there in, in verse 3, there's this blessing that's promised. It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who keep or guard or treasure value 
those things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is the only book in the Bible that promises if you read this, if you listen to teaching on it, and if you value it or keep it, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be happier. You're going to feel more fulfilled. Your life will start to fall into place. You know, I don't know about you, but anytime there's something that I think could make my life better, that could make me happier, that would make me feel more blessed, I'm open. I don't know too many people who go, you know what? I know if I read the book of Revelation, I know if I attend on Sundays and hear it, I know if I put it in my heart and value it, it's going to bless my life more. But you know what? My life is pretty much blessed as it is. I don't really need any more blessing. I've got all the blessing I can handle. I'm so happy I can hardly stand it. And I'm just concerned if I read Revelation and God's telling the truth and it makes me happier, I'm afraid that's just going to really put me over the top. (laughs) Not too many people have that issue. I used to when I'd get phone calls from salesmen and, and uh, even people who would approach you on the streets and, you know, they would say, how would you like another $10,000 a month of, of free income? I would always go, no, I don't think so. They go, what? You can't use another $10,000 a month? They go, no, I, I have so much money, I don't even know what to do with all of it now. So that would just be a big burden, but thanks. It was one of the best ways to get rid of salespeople because they haven't heard anybody say that. No, I don't need more. But if we, if we could use more of God's blessing, we should certainly want it. So it's kind of exciting to me to look forward to the new year and to think each of us who hang in here in this study are going to have blessings in our life from reading this and hearing it and keeping it, valuing it. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to look forward to that. I'm excited about that prospect. Is there something in your life that you'd love to see more blessed? Well, this, what it says is you'll be blessed. Now, the flip side is also true. If you just decide Revelation isn't for you, and you're like most churches and most people, like, nah, you know, that's just a bunch of that stuff. You know, I saw the, I watched the videos of the rapture, and I, I read a few of the LaHaye books, and so I think I'm covered. Um, According to this, by neglecting this study, you're missing on some blessings that God wants to give you. And I don't want to turn away blessings that God wants to bring in my life. Sometimes the way I live and the choices I make block those blessings from coming. Sometimes I don't pray enough or I pray wrong and those blessings are blocked. Like James says, you have not because you ask not. But if all he says is, look, read this book. Listen to teaching on it and make it valuable to you and you'll be blessed. For me, I'm in. That's why I'm going to be showing up on Sundays because, and, and studying this book because I believe that's true. But to neglect it is to miss out on a blessing. But in the rest of this introductory section here, and even really in the first phrase of the book, we see the most important benefit of studying the book of Revelation, we see why it's a blessing, we see why it changes our perspective, and we see what the incredible value is of this book. And it starts with the introduction, the title of the book, which is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Revelation, the Greek word apocalypse, it, it means to uncover something that was covered. It, it sometimes referred to nakedness, or it would refer to opening a top of a box and seeing what was in it. This, this revelation, this, this description, this greater understanding of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I don't, you know, maybe you don't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian. Some people don't like that term or they say follower of Christ or whatever. That's fine. I don't care what you call yourself. I've decided that Jesus Christ is the reason why I live, the center of my life, and I want to live for him. Now, if there's something that I need to see about Jesus that I haven't seen, that's pretty important to me. And so, you know, often we think, yeah, I know Jesus because I've read the Gospels, or I saw a movie about them. And so, yes, I have this vision of Jesus. But according to what this says, and according to John, who wrote the fourth Gospel and had read everything else that was ever written about Jesus, and he knew him well, what he was saying is, there's stuff in here that will reveal him in a way that hasn't yet been revealed. That's going to open your understanding of Jesus Christ and who he is in a way that couldn't happen otherwise. And so if I am someone who believes in Jesus, I want to see Jesus. I want to understand him. I want to know about him. And this book, the capstone of the New Testament, is something that radically reveals Jesus in a way that hadn't been other than through this book. And, you know... Again, revealing him is what it's all about. And so this is a book written by Jesus, about Jesus, and that means something to me, and it, and it should mean something to you. Um, people have a concept of Jesus, and usually it involves kind of a part of who he was and who he is. There are a whole lot of people who don't even believe he rose from the dead, but they like the idea of Jesus. And Jesus kind of, when he was talking to his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? <laughs> you know, well, there are different theories, Jesus. But who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. He said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But today, just like in those days, there are all sorts of ideas about Jesus. And it affects the way we understand the whole Bible too. The whole Bible is all pointing to Jesus and it's about him. But for a lot of people, two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament, is something they don't even connect with much because it's so hard to comprehend. The, the way we look at the Bible often is we look at the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament was this angry, vengeful God who's just like fed up and he can't wait to smash people and destroy them. So we're like, God of the Old Testament, stay away from him. New Testament comes along. Here's a God that you can deal with. Kind of a hippie, you know, all about peace and love, likes to play with babies and, you know, just heals people when he touches them, teaches wonderful thoughts and all that kind of stuff. Died, rose again, went to heaven. Boy, do I miss that God. Boy, do I miss that one. But... We read Revelation, and a lot of it starts looking like that God in the Old Testament, and we're going, wait a minute, how does this work? How do I put all this together? 
Is there just two gods? One's nice and one's mean, kind of like good God, bad God sort of thing? Or what does this mean? The book of Revelation is what ties together for us Jesus in a way that we will finally understand everything that's ever happened and everything that ever will happen. And we will discover that all along the destruction of sin and evil is what we need to see happen. And there's some stuff that's going to have to be cleaned up on this planet, stuff that has been damaging us and everyone who's here since Genesis chapter 3, and a God who really loves us would have to do that. And so seeing that whole picture develop, finally we can become at peace with who Jesus is in totality, as the one who was from the beginning, as the one who will be here until after the end, and seeing Jesus for who he is will make all of that make sense. And here, beginning with verse 4, he starts talking about um, Jesus and some of his revelation, and he gets right into it, but verse 4 he says, John, that's who was writing it, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Um, There were more than seven churches in Asia, and remember when the New Testament says Asia, it's referring to what's called Asia Minor, which is basically the country of Turkey today. And these seven churches that he addressed the letter to, and we will spend uh, seven weeks studying those churches when we get to chapters two and three, um, these were just indicative. There were other churches in Asia. He probably picks seven because the number seven um, in their culture and throughout the Bible, refers to kind of a number of completion or perfection. It means more than just that there were six plus one. It's referring to the totality. And and so he's picking these seven churches to say, this is what Jesus wants to say to all the churches, to everyone. And so it applies to us, it applies to our church, to every other church in the world, um, as much as it did to those local churches there in Turkey in in those days. But he says, grace to you and peace. We've talked about those words a lot, beautiful greeting, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and so on. So if you're reading this at first, you go, okay, here's a greeting from The one who, as he says, the one who is and who was and who is to come. So we're talking about someone who has always been. Someone who has always existed and always will exist. And so you go, that sounds like God. And that description of God is is given in different places to, to let us know, yeah, he's always. He's always been, he always will be. But then he says it's from him and from what he describes as the seven spirits who are before his throne. So you have God sitting on a throne. You have seven spirits in front of the throne. Now there are different interpretations, people speculating, what are those seven spirits? Because he just talked about seven churches referring to the totality of the church, um, I'm of the opinion, and it's just my opinion, Um, shared by a whole lot of other influential people, but I'm of the opinion that he's just talking about the Holy Spirit in all aspects of who the Holy Spirit is. Like, the Holy Spirit is everywhere, but he's like, man, 
everything to the Holy Spirit, the whole package, right there before the throne of God. Now, I, I didn't just make that up and no one else did either. There are times when seven seems to be used in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. And If you'd like, you can turn over to Isaiah 11 and, and see one place. And this is the passage that kind of put me over the top to thinking, yeah, this is probably the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11 is prophesying concerning Jesus. And it's a beautiful prophecy there in the 11th chapter. And he said, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. And you know Jesus' earthly descendancy through David and Jesse. But he says, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now that word branch there is used in other places to refer clearly to the Messiah. Isaiah likes the term and uses it a lot. The Hebrew word for branch is the word nazir. Now later when, when uh, Matthew talks about Jesus being a Nazarene, that is living in Nazareth, it says that that fulfilled prophecy. Now we have clear prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem. We don't have clear prophecy that says he would live in Nazareth unless you realize that the word Nazareth just means the place of the branch and then him being called the branch, um, it begins to make sense. But he says, a branch shall grow out of his roots the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And we know that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, was resting upon Jesus. At his baptism, it says that the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon him. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, but look at the description. He says, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. All of those things are describing the various aspects of what the Holy Spirit does. And so, but interestingly, when you read that description, from looking from where he says, the spirit of the Lord, if you begin to count, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord... Those are seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. So all that to say, when I read this, I see God the Father on His throne, the Holy Spirit before the throne, and, as He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is all of the things that this book is going to reveal. So if you want to buy that description of the Trinity, as is seen in the book or not, it's okay. It's not a major deal. There are tons of places in Scripture that, that describe the Trinity. But um, the Trinity is what we call the fact that there is one God, but He exists in three persons eternally, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you see this here, and then right away He begins to say, yeah, Jesus is there, now let me tell you about Him. And here are some of the things that we learn about Jesus just in this introduction. Jesus Christ is a faithful witness, first of all. You can trust what he says. Now this is kind of important here because this book is what he says and you can believe it. You can know that it's true. But it's so good that if you're basing your life on someone, it's nice to know that you can trust them. It's nice to know that they always show up, that they do what they say they're going to do. Faithfulness is such a rare commodity 
but to know that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And in this case, he's witnessing about himself and everything that he has done and is going to do. And so we learn that. You can extract that from various scriptures, but here he just gets right down to calling him. He is the faithful witness. But he goes on and says, Jesus also is the firstborn from the dead. Now that's kind of weird for us to see it that way. Because firstborn isn't referring to death or even resurrection. Firstborn refers to someone who's born. But the term firstborn doesn't always refer to someone who is born. That, that term generally refers to the rights and privileges of the one who is the head of the family. The one who will become that one who, who will um, inherit all of the family responsibilities and rights and so on. Now, so for Jesus to be called firstborn doesn't mean that he was born first. It also doesn't mean a firstborn from the dead doesn't mean that he was the first one to rise from the dead. Because certainly in the Old Testament, people rose from the dead. In the New Testament, people were risen from the dead by Jesus himself, like Lazarus, by Paul and others praying for people and having them come back from the death. But the one thing about everyone who ever raised from the dead, they also ended up dying. Jesus is a different sort. His resurrection was something that was, this was the first time it ever happened like this, and it's more powerful and more amazing than any other resurrection that will ever or would ever take place. See, because he's the first one who rose himself from the dead. (laughs) He's also the first one whose death had a purpose. He's the first one who didn't deserve to die. And he's the first one who would rise from the dead and then never have to die again. And he went ahead of us and he said, because I live, you will live also. And so his resurrection means that we will be resurrected as well. So that's a huge deal. And something that is just inserted here in the introduction to say, hey, he is not only a faithful witness, but he is the one who changed everything that had ever been in existence about death and about resurrection. So then he goes on and says, talking about Jesus, he's also the ruler over the kings of the earth. This is important to understand, especially as we look at future things and see evil rulers arise who want to take over the whole world. We see a desire to bring everyone together under my rule and my reign and I'm going to do evil things and I'm going to claim to be God. You look at it and go, I don't like this story. I don't like how this is going. But it's important to realize that any future world ruler, like every past world ruler, has a ruler. And remembering that ultimately Jesus is in charge. He is the ruler. The scriptures say anyone who gets put into power is allowed to be put there by him and he has purposes. We saw this all through the Old Testament where somebody would, you know, like a guy like Nebuchadnezzar who was a pretty evil guy, Babylonian leader. God promoted him so that he could punish Israel for her sins And then when it was time, God took him out and judged him as well. And we look at it and go, well, wait, why would God use someone like that? Well, I haven't even figured out why God would use me, so I can't answer that for you. But the point is, 
If there's an evil ruler, he has a ruler, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's important for us to understand today as we read the book of Revelation. There are some people who will read this book and go, man, that evil, manipulative ruler sounds like somebody I know. Sounds like some ruler that I know in the world. Maybe that is, you know, and people have always speculated, you know, somebody who's the epitome of a bad ruler. And basically, in our opinion, a bad ruler is anyone we didn't vote for or anyone we voted for who didn't do what they said they would do. But there's something that every ruler in this world, whether they're over Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan or Venezuela or the United States or anywhere else, Every one of them has a ruler, and he is the guy this book is about. He is the one who is being revealed to us. And so for me, that takes some of the pressure off. I don't have to stress out and be all anxious about, oh, what's happening with this world? Because I know who rules the rulers. And they may think that no one rules them, but someone rules them, and it's Jesus Christ himself. And so having that as a bit of advanced information helps us to face whatever horror is in our lives, whatever horror is going to come to this world in the future, because always every ruler will have a ruler, and he's Jesus Christ who is the ruler, the one who is in charge of everyone. And so we see that about him. And, and then we see to him who loved us. It's important to remember that God loves us completely and perfectly. Like the song that we sang, how he loves us. He, he loves us so much. And he shows how much. He says, the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He loves us enough that he shed his blood for us. How many people do you know who would be willing to bleed for you? <laughs> completely, to bleed out. How many people do you know who would even be willing to get punched in the stomach for you? <laughs> How many people do you know who would donate a kidney to you? Jesus Christ came, and after living a perfect life, he was willing to die for you. He was willing to have his blood poured out to bleed out for you. And so you can't see what Jesus does outside the context of the fact that he loves us. And he loves us in a way that he has proven. When we bleed, it's not something that he hasn't already done for us. When we hurt, it's, it's analogous to the hurt that he felt for us, but he went first. And so here at the beginning of Revelation, it's important to establish in this context, listen, when we talk about revealing Jesus, we're talking about someone who loves us so much that he proved his love for us by shedding his blood for us. And, and his gift of his life is what gave us life and washed us clean. You know, you, you might look at it and go, and today it's not popular. There are a lot of preachers who, you know, make sure they never talk about, oh, being washed in the blood of Jesus because, oh, that sounds so gross. But blood is a beautiful thing. The life is in the blood. Everything is, is in there. And if if someone came to rescue you and you were stuck in a place where you couldn't possibly survive if someone didn't show up and as they were coming to save you, you saw that they were bleeding, believe me, that sight of blood 
would be something that was a complete blessing to you if their blood saved your neck. And, and that's what it's saying about Jesus. We were healed, we were delivered, we were washed because he was willing to bleed for us. He wasn't limiting how far he would go for us. There are a lot of people that we wouldn't even give 10 minutes to them, much less bleed for them. Well, Jesus is different. And when we see him, everything that he does, everything that is described in the book of Revelation is a, is a description of the one who loves you that much, of the one who cares that much. So yeah, it seems a little weird sometimes, like, I don't know, does love act like that? Does love, is love destructive like that? When you look, like I say, the Old Testament, trying to put it together, and then you're seeing in Revelation, it talks about the wrath of the lamb. You're like, lambs don't get angry. Um, what, you know, when would you ever see a lamb, you know, just foaming at the mouth, going, wanting to attack you, and like Lambo, you know? And it would just, <laughs> but it's like, no, remember everything that he does, he has already established that he loves us. That's already a given, and we're going to see it more and more in that which he is willing to do, the extent to which he will go in order to finally fix what's wrong with this place. And so that, again, is a revelation of Jesus. And then in verse 6, oh, it's getting late, sorry. My, my messages get longer each service. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. That says a lot about him. He is our priest, and he is our king, and he deserves those positions. But there's something different about Jesus compared to any other person with power and influence ever, in that almost anyone else who has power wants to protect that power. They aren't interested in sharing with anyone. They're not, in fact, most cases, they're really threatened by anyone who might be promoted. They're paranoid about threats to their authority. But Jesus, amazingly, as our, he, he died so that he could be our high priest, and he is going to ultimately destroy sin so that he can be king. And then he says, and you're going to do it with me. You are a kingdom of priests, or you are royalty and you are priests. You don't need anybody else to go to God on your behalf. You don't need a middleman. You don't need somebody else to listen to so that you can then hear from God. You are royalty and you're a priest. And you don't have to wear a little collar or a robe or anything. You just get to be a priest. And you go, wait, is that women too? Yeah. It's everyone who Jesus cleansed by his blood has been made royalty and has been made a priest who can walk boldly into the presence of God. And we will see much more about that as we, as we go through this book. And so, and he says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He belongs at the top. And that's what this is about. And then he throws in there, behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. No one's going to wonder. No one's going to lie and say he doesn't exist. When he ends up touching down on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two, as the scriptures describe, and he comes back, it's going to be bad news for a lot of people. And so it talks about the, the uh, tribes of the earth mourning because of him. But even so, amen, it's going to happen. 
The people who pierced him are going to see him. He is going to return, and we're going to see how it all unfolds as we study through this book of Revelation. He is coming, and as Jesus himself said, I'm coming soon. And then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end says the Lord. Some of the older manuscripts say says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now you might go, why is in my Bible that in red ink? Because I thought we said earlier the one who is, was, is to come is God in totality or God the Father sitting on his throne. So where do you get that Jesus says this? And, and it would especially be difficult for it to be said about Jesus that he is the Lord God saying this. Now, it's definitely God who's speaking because the one earlier that we looked at refers to God. But the problem is, as we read on in verse 11, the one who is described as Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of hell and death. After saying in verse 17, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. So in verse 8, the one who is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, is also one who was dead and he's not dead anymore. And so clearly, not only is this Jesus who is giving the revelation of himself in this book, but Jesus is clearly also God. I can't see it any other way other than that. Now, before we close, I want to just say a couple things about the Alpha and Omega. Letters are really important. Because without letters, you can't make words. Without words, you can't make sentences. Then you can't make paragraphs, create thoughts. Communication is just one of the most amazing gifts that God has given to us. And it's something that, that is a gift that distinguishes us from all the rest of God's creation. Now, animals are able to communicate in some simple ways. A horse can stomp and you know, be taught through feeding them to do some simple math problems. Um, Pastor Chuck had a dog who, Chuck swore the dog would say, I love you. <laughs> and I heard it, and it sounded more like, rah, 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 but he was sure. <laughs> And, but, you know, we are able to take amazingly abstract thought and communicate it in a way that's not only clear, but clever. Sometimes it rhymes, sometimes it touches our hearts. When you look at a beautifully written poem or a song and things, I mean, what we are able to do with communication is just amazing. And the reason why he is choosing to identify himself here and all the way to the end of the book as I am the A to Z, I am the whole package, I'm the whole deal, is again because of what this book is about. This book is about communication of that which is absolutely most important to our existence, to our salvation, to everything else, this apocalypse this unveiling, this communication. And then it's so cool that later in the chapter, he says, John, write. Well, how are you going to write? With letters. 
that God has provided with the system, with the ability of the brain to be able to take what's in it and be able to put it on paper, put it in a way that others are able to understand it and then ingest it into themselves. When we are reading anything, anything, we are experiencing an amazing phenomenon. But to see that he is at the center of communication and he is the whole alphabet, the building blocks of that communication, and the communication is about him, it just doesn't get any better than that. And John was just so taken by this thought. Remember in the Gospel of John, he started the book, John chapter 1 and verse 1, he said, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so what we study when we study this book of Revelation is something that was divinely inspired. The letters owned by God being put together in a way that as we study this book, we will see Jesus in a new and a fresh way. We will see him in a way that answers a lot of our questions, that puts a lot of things in perspective. But this is God's love letter to us saying, I want you to unpack this. I want you to experience this. I want to touch you with this. And Jesus says, I'm the whole package. I'm everything that you'll ever need to know. And that's why when we read this, when we hear it, when we protect it and keep it, and obey it, we're participating in that which our existence is about. Simply, in the beginning, there was the Word. He was the one who now, in the end, we find out there is still the Word. There is still language. There is still this beautiful gift of communication. And it turns out, all along, it was all about Jesus. So that's what Revelation is, as we see in the first eight verses. Next week, we will look at the second half of this chapter about a revelation of the glorified Christ. We'll learn more about Jesus. And then as we get into chapters two and three, these letters to churches, we'll see, okay, here's what Jesus wants to say to us before we move on into what he says is going to happen to us and to others and ultimately where we all end up. So... Um, this will be a blessing, I know. Not because I'm so great, but because this book has a guaranteed promise that you'll be blessed simply by reading it and hearing it and keeping it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. You didn't have to communicate with us. You were fine without having a conversation with us. But you wanted to so much to communicate your love and your power and your ultimate deliverance, how you are going to fix what we all see the problem, but you see the solution and you intend to just take care of that and it could happen at any time. Lord, help us to live this week as if you showing up wouldn't be a surprise because we are living with those priorities anyway, desiring to live our lives for those things that matter forever. And so, Lord, as we dig into this book, speak to us, help us to stay focused on what you're clearly saying, not to get sidetracked on rabbit trails, but to get the point of your communication to us of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.